0: And we're on to the question, where did sin come from? The stork brought it, of course. And uh, last time we talked about why is there sin in God's good world. We took a stab at the philosophical question of theodicy. What we want to look at this morning is how did sin enter God's good world. So that's what we'll close our study of homardiology with this morning. And I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. God, thank you for your word. You are good and you do good. And all of the lack of conformity to your goodness is sin. That we feel it so acutely in our own hearts. We want to cry out with the Apostle Paul, I am chief. Put me at the front of the line. Uh, When we think about what sin is against others, when we think about what sin is at the heart and affection level, when we think about what sin is against you, when we measure it against your infinite character, we would cry out with David against you and you only have I sinned. I'm the chief and I've grieved my maker. God, we thank you for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became sin on our behalf, that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. I pray that our study would not only glorify you, but be informative, helpful for us. Um, may it produce in us a profound humility and eager evangelism. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, page 14 is where we're starting our discussion this morning. And I did receive one uh, question via email, um, a nine-year-old. Uh, email. Nine, the email was not nine years old. The writer of the email was nine years old, and asked this question: um, Why did Satan sin? Where did sin come for him? Um, and and what a fantastic question and a segue into our conversation today. Uh, I'm just going to let you know I will disappoint you with the answer to that question. I don't know. <laughs> But we do want to look at the biblical data this morning on how sin entered the world. And, uh, and we will take up some of the questions relating to how did sin um, begin with Satan. So on page 14, uh, you've, you've got a, a four-part progression of how sin entered the world. Number one, Satan. Satan. And let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And you remember that the first two chapters of your Bible portray a sinless universe, sinless humanity. The last two chapters of your Bible portray a sinless new heavens and new earth and a sinless humanity. Everything in between uh, is us sinning and the solution to that. In Genesis chapter 3, we get the entrance of sin into the world. Let's read the first five verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said, okay, so we've got a talking snake. And the snake said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good from evil. And what we have here in a talking snake is the incarnated, right, the embodied personality of the arch enemy of God, Satan. And We don't necessarily have Satan's name from this text. In fact, Satan doesn't get a lot of mentions in the Old Testament. Um, Verse 13, we read also, Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Um, It is the serpent talking, but we find out later in Scripture it is Satan behind the serpent. This has not become an allegory for man versus snake's right? Um, liberal theologians have said that. This, this isn't really about sin. It's not about Satan. Um, this is just about people and snakes. And, and the result is that men are going to crush snakes by the head and snakes are going to bite people on the heel. Um, that, uh, that view is taught regularly in uh, religion classes at ASU and things like that. Uh, very clearly, this is about Satan taking on the form of a serpent. He is called in Revelation, the serpent of old. Remember that? Um, The Bible makes it very clear who's involved here. But we don't get Satan named all all the way until we get to the book of Job. And I know that's uh, about halfway through your Bible. Job probably was penned prior to Genesis being written down. So it's early in history. Job comes from the patriarchal period. um, But is thousands of years after the event described here in Genesis 1. Does that make sense? Job was written before but it depicts events that happened after Genesis, okay? So uh, there was uh, a man in the land of Uz, Job 1, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Um, And then verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Um, I take sons of God there to be angelic beings. Satan, being one of them, came with them. And you have sort of behind-the-scenes look through the book of Job to Satan's activities in the world. And Satan wants to discredit God by picking on one of God's choice servants, Job, to prove to God and to a watching world that if Satan changes Job's circumstances, Job will curse God. And God gives Satan permission. He gave some boundaries. We recognize in that scene Satan's on a short leash. He can never do any more than God ordains. He can never do more than God permits or allows. Satan has to ask permission and God gives him permission. And God puts on display his own power to sustain a faithful heart. He's the one that produces a Godward heart. He's the one that sustains a Godward heart. And not Satan himself can undo what God does in the heart of man. That's the message of the book of Job. And so... We get this behind-the-scenes look at what Satan's doing. By the way, Job, in his lifetime, did not know Satan was doing that. He just knew he was suffering. He just was experiencing trials. Um, But we have this introduction into Satanology. Um, what, What we learned there is that Satan has access to heaven and earth, both in the Garden of Eden, He has access to the heavenly places, the the non-physical, the the supra-universal places, the the throne room of God that transcends the physical universe. Satan can go there. You remember Jacob's ladder uh, in in the vision that Jacob had in the dream where angels are ascending and descending the ladder between earth and heaven. I believe that's what's described as Satan's access both to the throne room of God where he can go before God and say, Job only loves you because you bought him off. And Satan has access to earth where Satan can interact physically in the physical world with physical people on the earth. I want you to look at Revelation chapter 12. A little bit more behind the scenes look at this one, this enemy. Revelation 12.9, we get the very clear identification of the snake from the garden. And he is called the great dragon. And Revelation 12.9 says, The great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Uh, Now, I believe Revelation 12 verse 9, is still future. That is not a look back at Satan being cast out of heaven. It is a looking forward at Satan and his demons being cast out of the heavenly places. How do we know that? Because what happens next in chapter 12 is Satan comes down to the earth and persecutes the nation of Israel. And tribulation events are taking place sequentially one after the other. Satan was extremely enraged at his departure from heaven, or will be extremely enraged at his departure from heaven in Revelation 12, making war on the woman, Israel, and on the rest of her children, Gentiles who get saved during that time period, because he is confined to the earth and he no longer has special privileges. His press card has been revoked. Right? Until Revelation 12, what is Satan called? You get a number of his AKAs here, right? His nicknames. He's the devil, he's Satan, he's the serpent of old. He's also a called the accuser of the brethren. In other words, right now, in our time period, presently, Satan still has access to the throne room of God and is doing today what he did in Job's day. Standing before God, blaspheming God's name, blaspheming God's presence, blaspheming God's work, and saying dirty, rotten things about Christians. (laughs) Probably dirty, rotten, true things. (laughs) But dirty, rotten, true, forgiven things about Christians. And we have an advocate before the Father, the Christ, the righteous, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who makes intercession on our behalf before the throne on the basis of his cross work. And so Satan, the accuser of the brethren, gets to stand before God and accuse. And Jesus, our intermediary, who went to the cross to pay for our sins, says before his father, that one's mine, his sins are paid for. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. Jesus Christ was condemned. Romans 8. So until Revelation 12 happens, which is still future, Satan still has access to earth and to heaven. And the scene. As mode he has been in from the beginning. He's a heavenly being, an angelic being. As an angel, his role, his defined role, according to Hebrews 1, is to be a servant of humanity. Angels exist for the glory of God to serve God's image bearers, mankind. Now, we're as humans here, we think, oh man, man's been made a little lower than the angels. Angels are way up there and we're way down here. They must be better than us. The biblical picture of the hierarchy of the created order is that you're higher than dolphins, right? Dolphins might be higher than kale. Well, they definitely are higher than kale. Um, In other words, the animated life has a higher place in the pecking order than unanimated life or rocks. But everything has its place, and angels exist to serve God by serving humanity. Um, that was Satan's designed role. And at some point, somehow, for some reason, he rebelled against his place. We read of his henchmen, the demons, that they too rebelled from their proper abode and went after strange things. Um, why? <laughs> why would you. Why would you ever do such a thing? To, to be in the presence of the glory of God and never be missing anything and to have the capacity for moral choice in nature and to choose against God. Not from a slavery to a sin nature, but in the freedom of ability to do so, to actually do so. And angels never have opportunity to repent. Never have opportunity to believe the gospel. Never have opportunity to be saved. One and done, you've heard in college basketball. Sin and done. Demons. It's over. And, and for Satan, the leader of these hosts, it has been over from the very beginning. Um, where did he come from? We, we just don't have a lot of information on Satan. Satan. And you might be familiar with some of the medieval Satanology um, that, that, that is in our popular culture. I don't know where the red horns and the pitchfork, pitchfork came from. Um, I read Gary Larson cartoons as a kid. You know, Satan's always portrayed there. You know, you get a picture of hell, and Satan's there. He's got a smile on his face, and he's torturing people. And, uh, and one dude's in there pushing a wheelbarrow, and he's whistling. And Satan's like, man, I'm just not getting to that guy. Um, That's just phony baloney, right? Satan uh, does not get to play around in heaven with his party pals. Um, Satan is not the lead torturer of the wicked. Satan is hell's first victim. Not first in time. Uh, The Antichrist and the false prophet get thrown in alive a thousand years before Satan gets thrown in. But Jesus said that hell was made for the devil and his angels. Satan is hell's first victim. Um, Why would he rebel? Why would he go against all the goodness of God and choose evil? And then having done that, why go after the image bearers and try to take as many with you as you can? Um, Some of our Satanology has come from two particular texts. I've got them in your notes. uh, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here. If we have leftover time, we might come back to to these two passages. Uh, But I put them in your notes just so that you can perhaps read them later. Um, Ezekiel 28 starts with these words. The word of Yahweh came again to me saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says Edonai Yahweh, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Because your heart is lifted up, you've said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God's in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. Um, And then there's this extended um, prophecy against that king of Tyre. It was a real king at a real time um, who had opposed God and his people, um, who had uh, had a serious undertaking of of anti-Semitic genocidal plans against God's people. Um, And it says things like this, verse 14, you walked in the midst of the stones of fire, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And people take those words and say, oh, God must be talking about Satan. Who else was blameless from the beginning and then unrighteousness was found in him? Um, I, I just, my take on this is I believe God is speaking specifically to the king of Tyre, an earthly king. And I believe everything that's described uh, of these passages speaks of that king of Tyre. And I think we've taken the language of Ezekiel 28 and also the language of Isaiah 14. Um, You were the chosen cherub, you were the anointed cherub, and you dwelt in God's garden. that these are metaphors describing earthly kings expressing God's privilege that he gave to them while they dwelt on the earth with all the luxuries, all the resources, all the opportunities, and they squandered them. And I think we've taken these two passages about two earthly kings and we've built our Satanology out of them. And that's where we get the idea that Satan was perfect and he was in the Garden of Eden and he got jealous of God's glory and he wanted God's place and he lifted himself higher than God and that's when and how he fell. Um, and and just to kind of bring us up to speed, I think what we think we know about Satan's fall, we know from those two passages. There aren't other passages that describe Satan's beginnings. Now I'm going to risk just a little bit of confusion here, and I'm, I'm I, I, I think there's a nuance that's important. I believe that when God is prophesying against the King of Tyre. I believe the king of Tyre is satanically driven to do the things he's doing. He's not just a king, happy-go-lucky in his own kingdom to rule however he wants, and he doesn't care about God, and he just wants a gold chalice filled with cherry Coke and a ribeye steak and slave. You know, he, he is specifically opposed to God and God's people and God's ways. I believe that the king of Tyre is satanically driven, and that even the speeches that God imposes through his prophet against the king of Tyre might be aiming through that king of Tyre at the satanic source behind it. And I, I also in uh, Isaiah 28, the same thing is happening. An earthly king who's not just any old run-of-the-mill earthly king that doesn't, doesn't really care about God, and so he's punishable for being godless. He has actually set his entire kingly agenda in an anti-Semitic rage and genocidal approach to the destruction of God's people. And I believe Satan's behind it. And God may be, while addressing the earthly king, pointing out the heartbeat of Satan behind it. Okay? I know that's a technical and sort of nuanced approach to those passages. I just want to exercise caution and not build too much out of these two passages to develop a robust Satanology. Trap door or a, uh, uh, a tight argument that just says, this is for sure what we know about Satan. Does that make sense? I think these are two earthly kings that quite possibly are satanically driven. Um, All that being said, we just don't get a lot of information. Remember, we went from Genesis all the way to the book of Job in our Bibles with no mention of Satan. That's a lot of Bible to cover where, man, I'm I'm looking for Satan in here. I just don't find him. Isn't Isn't he active all the time? Yes, he's a roaring lion roaming the earth seeking whom he may devour. Um, And so, and the accuser of the brethren and all the rest. He's he's very active, presently active in all kinds of things. Um, So it's not that he doesn't exist. But the Bible doesn't give us the indication that we do battle with Satan personally. Like your task is to go have words with Satan, right? Um, Chief top angels didn't do that. And and it is an arrogant boldness um, that goes outside the bounds, um, I believe, when Christians take that sort of approach to Satan. We're given clear instructions. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee. Resist. Uh, Don't exercise. Cast him out. Bind him. Did anybody in here bind Satan in prayer? Anybody do that? I mean, I'm not asking, did you really do it? Why did he keep getting out? But did you ever pray that? I did for a lot of my life. Talk to him directly in prayer. I don't think I want to be doing that. So, what do we know about Satan? We know he's the serpent of old. He departed his proper abode and he shows up in the garden as a sinner, enticing others to sin. There's no hope for him, no redemption. Along with him, number two, how did sin enter the world? Fallen angels. Matthew 25, 41. Um, demons are angels who have fallen along with Satan, who is an angel who fell. Um, hell is their home. Hell's made for them. Uh, the hell belongs to the devil and his angels. Um, and then the entrance of sin into the world after Satan and demons comes through humans. Through Adam and Eve. That's number three on your list. How did sin get into the world? Adam and Eve. And, And you know the story of the fall. Satan enticed Eve to take, Eve enticed her husband to take. They sinned. And then they went from being able to sin as moral agents in the garden, who didn't sin, but then they did, to unable to not sin as sinners by nature and what adam and eve have passed on to all of humanity is a solidarity with their sin nature so that you inherited what your parents gave you a natural propensity to sin and they got it from their parents and they got it from their parents all the way back to adam and eve's kids every human being who has ever lived since adam and eve has been a sinner with one exception right the lord jesus christ Right? And God makes a declarative statement that this one is not in the line of inherited sin by virgin birth. Right? He interrupts the natural flow of things to demonstrate to the world this one's different. Everybody else, we sin by nature. And so number four is human progeny. And the evidence, uh, turn to Genesis 4. The evidence for sin's entrance into the world. Right? We covered this when Scott was preaching through Romans chapter 5. Um, that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men on account of the fact that one man sinned. One guy sins and death comes in. Physical death, spiritual death. And because of that pervasive spiritual death, we all by nature sin. And we see that on display in Genesis chapter four. So uh, Cain murders his brother, Right? We see that in, in the very beginning. Um, we see a number, a, a, a whole litany of sins uh, coming out. Um, notice verse 18: Enoch to Enoch was born Arad, and Arad became the father of mahujael and mahujael became the father of mahushael. By the way, if you're reading the Bible to your kids and you get to these lists of names, I don't think it matters how you pronounce them. okay Just get through the list. You, where were we? Oh, you know what? I, I skipped one that's really important. Um, Cain uh, was uh, said to the Lord in verse 13, my punishment's too great to bear. You've driven me this day away from the face of the ground. From your face I will be hidden. I will be a vagrant and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain has introduced murder, right? Technically, Satan introduced murder. He's a murderer from the beginning, right? He killed humanity. Um, but, but when it gets to humans, Cain's the first murderer. And what is he afraid of? Murder. He just invented or introduced this infection. And so God gave Cain a promise. Whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. So the Lord gave him a sign. God was gracious to Cain, the first murderer. Um, and so you get down to verse 19. Methusael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself, notice, two wives we're like in the, in the first chapter after the fall. We've got murder and the undoing of God's plan for marriage from the very beginning. You're not supposed to have two wives. This sounds like six out like a sore thumb. Uh, Lamech takes to himself two wives, um, and then uh, he, they, they have children, and all kinds of things are invented. Um, you get the forger of implements, bronze and iron. Listen, the, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age are not... Uh, ancient, prehistoric, developmental, anthropological eras, right? They happen right after creation. Man is digging stuff up out of the ground and refining it and building things. Man is inventing music and inventing musical instruments and playing things. All of this is happening at the very beginning. In verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, plural, that's a problem, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And you go from the introduction of sin, the, the, the perversion of marriage, the introduction of murder to mass murder and a guy boasting in it. Humanity's off to a rough start. What are the mechanisms? Oh, by the way, when you get to Genesis 5, um, uh, notice how the, the genealogy in Genesis 5 is written. Verse 5, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Verse 8, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Enosh 905 years, and he, died, and he 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 died, all the way down the list, one exception, right? Enoch was raptured. He walked with God, then he wasn't, okay? But you see how death has become pervasive. God said, when you eat of the fruit, you'll die. And, and death has come in because of sin. And the proof of it is in the first two chapters after the fall. Genesis 4, the world is sinning. It's not like after Adam and Eve fell, then everybody was on the same neutral playing field they were, and you got some that lived longer in a Garden of Eden and some that didn't know. Every single person from Adam and Eve on sins by nature. It is universal. And death with it as the proof. So we sin because of an inherited sin nature, Ephesians 2, 3. We sin because of human choice, John 3, 19 to 21. Jesus says light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Sin occurred because Satan, Adam, and Eve chose to exercise their volition to disobey God rather than to love God. That's how sin entered. And once sin is in, Its foothold is not at the free moral agent making a choice. Its foothold is at our nature. We act out of who we are at the heart level, our internal makeup. What is God's relationship to sin? This is a critical question as we study sin. Um... God is sovereign, meticulously sovereign over every single thing. R.C. Sproul has said there is no rogue molecule in the universe. Okay, but what does that mean about God's relationship to sin? If God is meticulously sovereign and people sin, doesn't that mean God is sovereign over sin? Yes. Well, then therefore God is responsible for sin. What do we say to that? We need to think very carefully and very precisely about this question. By the way, one of the ways uh, that we don't want to do theology is by logical deduction. Men get in trouble by doing theology by logical deduction. When we do systematic theology, that is, we want to say everything the Bible has to say about topic A. What does the Bible say about forgiveness? We can do a systematic theology of forgiveness where we can think theologically, systematically about everything the Bible says about forgiveness. But that systematic theology, that organization of a given theological topic, has to be derived exegetically. It has to be derived exegetically. That means we get our information and our truth that build the pieces of a systematic theology from texts of Scripture rightly understood. By the way, if you hold to a systematic theology, if you have a theological system, that a single passage dismantles. You can't make your systematic theology overwrite that passage. That passage is telling you, "Er, er, your system's wrong somewhere. Some piece of it is wrong somewhere. If this verse doesn't fit into your system, ditch the system, go back to the exegesis, figure out that you have the, the, the right understanding of all the passages that relate to this, and then rebuild the system. That's how we should relate to systematic theology. I don't know why I'm on that tangent. Um, Because when we think about the question, what is God's relationship to sin? You cannot make the the true statement, God is sovereign over everything meticulously, which is a biblical truth, and uh, sin exists, and therefore logically deduce God is responsible for sin. You will all of a sudden disagree with clear passages of Scripture and you will be blasphemous. There's just a danger and a temptation for us humans to make those logical deductions and conclusions. We just have to be very careful with that. We, we hold some things loosely while we let texts speak. So let's look at a few texts just to help inform uh, what we are to think about God's relationship to sin. I want you to turn to Genesis 50 and verse 20 we 've looked at this before. This is the Old Testament version of Romans 8:28. God causes all things to, get, to work together for good, to those who love Him, called according to His purpose. All things there includes things like sin. God causes sin to work together for good, to those who love Him. And this one is particularly interesting, uh, not only because of the situation, but because of the details of the verse itself. Genesis 50, 20 states, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph is speaking, right? And and Joseph is speaking to his brothers, and his brothers are troubled. You remember the story? Um, They were jealous of the coat, um, the technicolor dream coat. I don't know if that's really what it was. It was just a really special jacket. And, and, and it, it was a, a physical evidence of a dad's probably sinful favoritism, maybe evidence of other factors going on, but, but probably some sinful favoritism that didn't work too well in, in, in the ears and the eyes of the brothers. And they followed Cain's heartbeat and said, we need to kill him and they hemmed and hawed and decided against that but they made out like he was dead and they blood stained the coat and gave it to dad so poor dad thinks his son is dead for almost his entire earthly existence and then they put him in a hole i don't know what to do with him until some slave traders come by and they sell their own brother into slavery Until there's a famine in the land and they show up in Egypt because Egypt's got grain and the second in command in Egypt is the brother they sold into slavery and thought they were done with. And when he's revealed, they're terrified. (laughs) Oh no, this guy has all the power. He wields all the power of the reigning superpower of the world in our day and we're the ones that offended him. (laughs) We're dead meat. And he comforts them. He missed them. He loved them. And he's explaining this really important piece of theology to them. And it is specifically a relationship between God's sovereign activity and the sinful activities of his creatures. And how they're working together. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. What was the evil? Separate me from my family. I don't get to see dad anymore. Uh, My poor dad thinks I'm dead. Um, You lied, you cheated, you stole, you threw me in a hole, you stole me into slavery. You wanted me dead. It's evil, it's wicked. But notice the verse, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What's the it? All that same evil, same stuff. God intended it. And by the way, the verb is the same in both. The brothers intended evil against Joseph. And God intended that same evil for good. And for whom was the good? Joseph certainly benefited, right? Um, He he gets this really remarkable reversal that makes for a great stage play. Of course, you, you kind of forget the... Uh, languished in prison and false accusations and all the rest. It it, it really wasn't a great story for a long time. But then, man, from out of the ashes, the phoenix rises and Joseph is on the top of the world, right? Great story. God meant it for good for Joseph. Who else did God mean it for good for? For the brothers. God actually meant their evil for their own good to preserve them in the time of famine. And not only for them, but for the fledgling nation, which was the nation of Israel, which was going to go into Egypt eventually with some 72 people and come out probably with some 2 million, uh, where they were preserved from the roving bands of ancient Near Eastern pirates and bandits. I don't know if you have pirates without boats. Camel pirate? I don't know how that works. But robbers and plunderers and a wandering family with a lot of sheep and goats was going to be an easy target. Um, For armed bandits. And God brought them under the wing of the superpower of the world. Under mighty Egypt. And let them grow and develop and prosper and all the rest. God meant it good for the nation. Um, God also meant it good for Egypt. By the way, there's a special part of God's heart for Egypt in scripture. Um, Now, Israel gets condemned for trusting in Egypt rather than trusting in the Lord. There are curses on Egypt. But the fact that God used Egypt to sort of incubate his precious nation uh, means that it holds a special place. And, And you watch to millennial promises in the Old Testament prophets, and they're actually promises related to the blessings for Egypt in the age to come. So God meant good for Egypt. And who are the brothers? They're the sons of whom? Who's the dad? Jacob, and Jacob's new name was Israel, which means he wrestles with God. It becomes the name for the entire nation. These brothers are the sons of or the tribes of Israel. Um, One of those tribes, one of those tribal heads, one of those sons was named Judah. And Judah was given a promise that through his line would come one who is like a lion's whelp from whom the scepter would never depart which is a continuation of the seed promise God made to the woman in Genesis 3.15 right after she sinned against her maker, that a seed would come from her that would crush the snake's head. And that seed was going to come through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. So guess what? If Judah starves in a famine, you don't get your sins forgiven. No Jesus, right? So Genesis 50.20 goes from, oh yeah, God sort of turned around Joseph's story. No, God's up to something big and good and wonderful. And what did he use to accomplish it? What were God's means of accomplishing this great good for everyone who would believe in Jesus Christ? Evil, sin, jealous, murderous, hatred for a brother. Pretty remarkable statement. You meant it for evil. God meant it. The same it. It. For good, that gives us a little bit of an insight um, into how God relates to sin. Um, he's not the one sinning, God isn't the one that sinned, but God is using it, employing it, intending it for good, and of course romans eight twenty eight God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. By the way, you can't shorten Romans eight twenty eight to all things for good. All things for good. It's all good. Life's good. Can't do that. There's some important caveats. God intends everything for good to those who love him. Right? And that's defined by those who are called according to his purpose. Called to what? Um, called to be predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Next verse. And all whom he called, he also justified and glorified, right? It's that unbreakable chain of salvation in Romans eight twenty-eight to 30. Those are the ones for whom God intends all things, including sinful things, including the sinful things of the redeemed for the good of the redeemed. We must use to affirm Psalm one fifteen three. our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He is absolutely sovereign. We must affirm that. Number two affirmation we must make is God is the ultimate cause of all things. He is the beginning. There's nothing before him. There's no yin and yang in the universe competing for some throne. God is the ultimate cause of all things. I'll give you some verses there. Uh, thirdly, God accomplishes his sovereign purposes immediately. immediately. That means he mediates his sovereign, ultimate power through means. God uses means. God used means when he sovereignly saved you. Someone preached the gospel or somebody translated the Bible into your language. God used means. Um, God uses means in lots of his activities. God's use of evil is immediate use. Um, Genesis 20 is a positive example. That's where Abraham was scared because his wife was beautiful and he's afraid uh, for the second time that somebody would take her. So he said, oh, she's my sister. Don't kill me. And and we should probably turn there. Let's take a a moment. Turn to Genesis 20. This is Abimelech. And and we just saw this story in Egypt when Abraham was in Egypt and Pharaoh took his wife. Now Abimelech's taking his wife. Um, Abraham's, this is not exemplary husband here. Um, So Abimelech has Sarah and leaves her alone. And God appears to him in a dream uh, and, and said, verse 3, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she's married. Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did Abraham himself not say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, yeah, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart, Abimelech says, and the innocence of my hands, I, I, didn't, I didn't touch her yet. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And also, I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. That is compatibility between God's sovereign activity and the actions of sinners. Abimelech did not feel like a robot. He did what he wanted to do. But behind the scenes, we understand God is ultimately in charge. And so God has his way in a positive way with Abimelech. Um, for negative examples, I give you a couple examples there in 1 Samuel, um, where God is ultimately in charge and men do evil things. And God is still said to be in charge of it while not doing the evil. There's a compatibility in Scripture between God's sovereignty and the actions of sinful humanity. Number four, Scripture explicitly affirms God's superintending role over evil. Acts 2.23 is probably the best example to think of. Acts 2.23, Peter is preaching about the cross. And he says, You men crucified God. But this was done according to the predetermined plan of God. That's a remarkable statement. Men don't get off the hook for their crimes against their maker. And yet, God is ultimately responsible for those activities. By the way, if wicked men don't commit deicide, you don't get your sins forgiven. If wicked men don't kill God in the flesh, you remain in your sins and face eternal destruction. What if God employed, even intended, predetermined the most wicked act ever committed in history? And he did that for our good. Now, did God, did God sin? Did God commit the crimes? No. Is he in charge? Did he intend it? Yes. And number five, this is so critical. We must also affirm that God is not the source, nor the author, nor the immediate cause of evil. James he 1.13. He's never tempted, and he doesn't tempt anyone to evil. Really, really clear. Psalm 119, 68, God is good and he always does good. There's no evil in him. Genesis 131, God created everything and said it's good. From beginning to end, God only ever does good. And he uses evil to accomplish his good purposes. Evil is in the world. It, evil never goes farther than the tether of the leash That evil is on to God's sovereign purposes. Evil can never outdo God's plans for it. The Bible affirms He's sovereign meticulously, He predetermines and He plans, but He does so in a way that His hands are clean, that He is not sinning nor making anybody sin. He has integrity. Burkhoff said it this way, God's eternal decree rendered the entrance of sin in the world certain, but this may not be interpreted so as to make God the cause of sin in the sense of it being responsible, of God being its responsible author. So maybe a cautious way to conclude here, it seems reasonable to conclude that God controls evil in such a manner that he gets his sovereign will accomplished without getting his hands dirty. And um, I give you uh, Romans 9, to 23. I didn't put the English text there. Uh, but there are two words that are used in slightly different forms to affirm the way God actively saves versus the way he intentionally allows rebellion and condemnation. And that distinction is important. Paul seems intentionally in Romans 9, 22 to 23, and I preached on this um, a couple of months ago. You can go back and listen to the details But Paul seems intentionally to put space between the way he superintends evil actions. He prepares the reprobate um, for eternity in a certain way by superintending it. And that's different than the way God personally ushers his children to glory. If anybody gets saved, God has to have his hands all over it. When people sin, God's not making people do that. They do what is true from their own nature. And God still gets to be in charge, still gets to be sovereign, and still use it. Um, Some have said, well, God can't be powerful if evil exists. Oh, the contrary. God's power is radically on display as evil exists, and God makes his arch enemies serve his perfect purposes. That's how great our God is. That's how powerful our God is. That's how good our God is. Let's pray. Lord, you are so kind And you're bigger and stronger than everything else out there. And you're on our side by grace. And in these things we can rest forever. In Jesus' name.